Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. G-A-L-D-E-M-G-A-L-D-E-M This song is good. Welcome back to another episode of Growing Up With Galdem, a Galdem original podcast. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour. My name is Charlie brinkhurst Cuff. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galdem. And my name's Natty Kasambala. I'm a former editor and long-time contributor at Galdem. You can find Growing Up With Galdem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we are joined by Afwa Hirsch, who is someone that I am really proud to call a friend. Afwa's worked as a barrister, a TV news correspondent and anchor. Recent documentaries that she's written and presented include African Renaissance, a major BBC series on African art, and Enslaved, a series about the history of the transatlantic slave trade, which she co-presented with the one and only Samuel L. Jackson. She regularly writes, reports and speaks on international current affairs and has published two best-selling books, British on race, identity and belonging and equal to everything about the UK Supreme Court. So I personally really enjoy Afua's Guardian columns, which are always a good read. So if you haven't yet looked them up, please do so. We're really excited. It's such an honour to have you here on the show. Um, And I think just to dive straight in, into the deep end, I guess like as a hyper-visible journalist, black woman, person in the media, something that you've obviously had to probably deal with is a lot of opinions and perhaps armchair critics, I guess, across social media and especially when you're tackling the kind of subjects that you do. Um, So I guess I wanted to just ask, like, how you cope with that sort of aspect of your job and what that's been like for you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy to be with you guys. You know, I love and support your work. So it's really great to be in this space. Thank you. And it's a big question, I guess. And it's true that I get a lot of critics who 
haven't actually thoughtfully entered this discourse. And that's one thing I just always find remarkable, you know, the lack of humility that people who have never thought about race, who have never sought to understand the ways in which our society is racialized, who have never contemplated whiteness, who just haven't done any of the intellectual labor, feel so comfortable attempting to counter arguments that are based on like a lifetime of lived experience of scholarship, of discussion. And, you know, I sometimes liken it to something like astrophysics. I really am not an, ex an expert on astrophysics. Actually, I'm quite curious about astrophysics, but I'm really not authoritative at all. And if I were entering a conversation with someone who spent their whole life thinking about it, I just feel like I would have a level of humility that I would want to learn from that person and understand what it is they've seen and witnessed and understood. And when it comes to race, it's the complete opposite of that. Everybody feels by virtue of being alive in the world no matter how much they've never interrogated their privilege or their gaze, they feel as if they have a legitimate contribution to that conversation. And that's mm -hmm. one of the really frustrating things about this work. You know, there's so much actual work to do in planning how we can dismantle our systems of racism, planning how we can educate future generations. And instead of doing that work, you end up doing the work of having to persuade people that there is work to do, having to mm -hmm. persuade people that they are ignorant, having to just do this really basic job of showing people that they are at zero when they think that mm -hmm. they're at 50 or 100 already. So that can be really frustrating. And I've actually really changed my approach over time. I think I went in with a, a really kind of like optimistic and possibly naive spirit that if you do the work and you have the material and the evidence and the information, people will meet you there and people will engage with you in a reasoned way. And I realized that a lot of people aren't interested in a reason-based debate. They're not interested in the mm -hmm. evidence. They're not interested in knowledge. They seek to just project their ignorance onto others. And it's not a good use of my, or I, in, in my opinion, a lot of us, of our time and mental energy to do that. So now I'm a lot more selective in how I engage in the debate and the discourse. And I think that, you know, for me, I needed to go on that journey of trying to reach people and I feel yeah. like I kind of exhausted my potential for reaching people in a certain way. <laughs> and that, that's part of my story. But I definitely don't want to and probably wouldn't advise others to spend a lifetime doing that. I think you have to know what your role is and where you can feel well and like you're maximizing your gift and your ideas. So, you know, it's an evolving, it's an evolving story. I really respect that perspective. And like, I remember you shared an old TV show once that you had been doing where you were kind of literally hands on fielding the questions of, of like people who had inquiries about race and all of these different things. And you were kind of like reflecting back on that and being like, this was a time when I thought that this was like, you know, gonna work. And I felt like yeah. this is what I had to do to teach people these things. And yeah. I think you're so right that it's almost like a rite of passage where you yeah. feel like you have to attempt <laughs> that work first to be like, yeah. oh, you know what? Yeah. It's actually okay. <laughs> and it's funny, I'm just, as we speak, writing something, I've not wanted to engage in this latest round of Meghan Markle bashing at all. Mm -hmm. Like often I kind of step in and try to highlight the specific ways in which the British media narratives are very like rooted in racism. And, you know, I've realized in that specific story, like the same thing happens over and over again. And it, yeah. it's not designed to actually educate people or achieve progress or change. It's a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's a form of entertainment. You know, the media hit her with racist tropes and then they give platforms to anti-racists to explain why that's racist and they go round and round. 
And, you know, when you really see it for what it is, and this isn't in any way to take away from the people who are doing that work of educating and being in the space. I respect them so much. I've done it myself. But for me, I've just started to see how circular it is and how it's controlled by people who are profiting from continuing to perpetuate those racist narratives. So, you know, everybody's, you've just got to, I guess, have the self-knowledge and the confidence to know what you feel you should do. No one can tell you what your role is whether you want to get in there, whether you don't, or how. I think, you know, we're all, and I suspect everybody listening to this, we're all concerned with doing that work of anti-racism. Everyone's got their role to play. Everybody's got their, their own paths. People often ask me like how I cope with mine, and I think it's, it's a personal story, but it is also one that I feel I can offer insight like into what works, what doesn't work, and how you know when you've exhausted the potential for change in one specific way. Yeah, for sure. It's it's so interesting that you, well, th- there's loads of in- interesting things you said and it made me reflect on when I was a very young teen and I used to, on Bebo, did you ever come across Bebo? Yeah. Way? It might be, <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there used to be like these um, national front groups on Bebo and like very like extremely like right-wing and, and nationalist groups and I would spend hours as like a baby teen just arguing with these like clearly these sort of old incredibly racist white men because <laughs> I thought I could change their minds yeah. and I was, I was so convinced of that but yeah as, as Natty says it's the right passage you go through and then you're like yeah. and then yeah in relation to Meghan Markle I was just thinking as you were saying that that I think in terms of being asked to contribute to the conversation around Meghan Markle like I've never received so many broadcast reach outs in comparison to to when a story about her breaks in the news. Every single time, every outlet would just be like scrambling to, yeah, and as you say, it's a cyclical conversation that doesn't really move us anywhere. But one, one question I had for you was just on going back to this idea of critique. And one thing that I think I, I always struggle with and grapple with is, is, is not so much critique from these people who are, you know, completely, you know, ignorant and who, you know, I've chosen at this stage not to, engage with but it's more when the critique comes from people that you respect or who you feel like you're on the same side of that's when I I kind of struggle with it I think most people do I don't know if that's something that you've been through but I just wondered if you if you had experienced that and how you kind of engage with I enjoy discussion and debate with people who I think have also done the work and you know Mm -hmm. if people who are invested in that discourse and in the material have a different perspective. I, I love those conversations. I think those are really mm-hmm. fulfilling and really important. What I don't enjoy and try not to do is have conversations with people who are not educated about this subject. And I think, you know, it's harder to see who's not educated because often people with a high level of formal or elite education are particularly uneducated about race. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I have had to come to terms with is how many Black people are included in that group of people mm-hmm. who are not educated about race. And that's that of all the things, that is the thing that I find really difficult and often painful because, mm. you know, I'm here for black people. I always want to talk to and engage with black people. I feel a sense of communal purpose and community. And so when somebody with whom I feel that that community isn't aware or educated and doesn't want to be and is allowed themselves to be hijacked by white supremacist ideas that's really hard it's really really hard and sometimes people are very invested in upholding white supremacy within our community and I think there are lots of examples of those people in government right now for example and Mm -hmm. that is something that I find 
to be honest, very triggering. And it's because I am more invested in those people and I, I know their potential to be anti-racist. So to see them allow themselves to be used for an agenda that seeks to continue to oppress us is just it's just painful. Like there's no good outcome mm-hmm. from that. I don't enjoy mm-hmm. taking those people down. I don't want to attack them publicly. I don't want to be attacked by them publicly. And so I think that that is something that has become more and more of an issue recently to me. And I think, you know, it's it's, it's hard just to accept the fact that people f- from our background or in our community can be so invested in upholding white supremacy and disinterested in learning or understanding how race works. And I think, you know, I've been on a journey of understanding that being black doesn't exempt you from ignorance about how race works, you know, and that we all have different backgrounds and different stories, especially in Britain. And I think I've realized, you know, that in my own family, people who are first generation immigrants, for example, from a country where most of their life has been spent in an environment where everyone is black, don't necessarily have an awareness of how race works in a country where you're part of the minority and it's just difficult it's difficult and um i think that what we're seeing now is that though people who are not aware of race or have remained deliberately ignorant about race and white supremacy are being rewarded for that ignorance and that complicity so that's frustrating as well you know you get rewarded for that you get rewarded for being a black person who upholds white supremacy and you get penalized for being a black person who pulls it out and that's nothing new but it just feels as if it's becoming more and more omnipresent in daily life the sense of black people being promoted to positions of extreme power and influence who are really not on the side of doing this work so that is something i lament I think that's a really important point and it's almost like it seems to be a case of black people but also just a lot of non-white people um for example dishy rishi springs to mind people <laughs> of that kind of that kind of ilk um and I guess the point that you raised there as well on the differences between people who are raised in majority black countries versus those who are raised as minorities in white countries is super interesting um and something I've experience with my parents versus when we moved to a white majority area and then only now really realizing the impacts that that might have on kids growing up in that in that space and so I wanted to ask have you temporarily relocated to Ghana and I guess how that might have impacted your perspective on you know living in a very different landscape to the UK in terms of race I have temporarily relocated to Ghana. I do spend extended periods of time in Ghana and I have lived here before. I think, well, there's a few things to say. I I think as a a Pan-Africanist, somebody who really believes that as black people all over the diaspora, we can't meaningfully talk about anti-racism without being invested in the African continent and part of the struggle to decolonize, which is an ongoing project of decolonizing the African continent, contributing to the growth of African economies. I really believe that. And I think that If you want to be serious about that and taken seriously, it's important to spend time living and working on the African continent and not being a kind of somebody who sits in Britain or America criticizing or critiquing without being here. So, you know, I think the return movements we've seen lately are really important and powerful from that perspective, just to bring more diasporans back to the reality of what's going on on the African continent and working out how they can be part of its growth. It's definitely always interesting to be in an African country. I mean, it's on a very kind of superficial, it's not even superficial, but on like a surface level, it's always a relief to be in a place where 
blackness isn't totally normalized, just totally normalized, you know, from little things like packaging and advertising to TV anchors and, you know, the police. It's the, this, this total normalization of seeing black people. And, you know, every time I've come to Ghana all my life, it's always been the first thing that hits me. And, you know, it's not news, but it still always hits you. And, you know, there are white people here, obviously, but there's a, they're the minority. And so they have an awareness of their whiteness, which is also refreshing mm -hmm. because it means when you engage with white people, in this context, they have a greater understanding of the fact that whiteness exists. So that's always nice. And I think at the same time, it is a bit of a holiday from racism in the sense that not that racism doesn't operate in African countries. Of course, it does. In a sense, because it's not the predominant issue facing people viscerally, you can get on with doing what it is you do, whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur or in government. That's the primary thing that hits you every day and not to sugarcoat life here there are a lot of struggles here and you know there's a lot of hardship here but it's not one that is primarily oriented around race in like that visceral everyday sense so in a way it's always a relief just to be in a place where that's not the first thing you have to think about when you interact with people it's complicated for me because as a mixed race person I'm also very conscious of a level of color privilege that I have here and because of our history of colonialism and because of white supremacy, there's a there's a level in which you are seen as different or privileged because you're light skinned. And so I, I'm always really mindful of that and not wanting to come here and enjoy that because that's part of the problem. You know, so it's complicated and it's not I step away from feeling racialized as black in Britain to here where I feel conscious of being visibly light skinned and in danger of benefiting from that. But I do feel as well that like the discourse around that has really grown in West African countries in particular. So I think that I have conversations with other Ghanaians about this now all the time. And I think it's something we can talk about. And I think that's really healthy. Yeah, that's good. And it, I, it sounds like you sort of found some pockets of joy um, in this very tricky time. Um, so I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> that Ghana is treating you well. Um, one thing I wanted to chat to you about just briefly before we move on to extract was I saw that you, um, in, in relation to Ghana, so I saw that you posted about the LGBTQI plus rights centre in Ghana um, in, in Accra that was closed down. And I just wondered like what this situation was kind of like on the ground. I don't know if you've sort of heard anything or been having conversations with people because certainly here in the diaspora, it's it's been quite a sort of area of interest and people want to get behind and, and you know, help to support, yeah, LGBT people who are, who are currently out there. Yeah, so it's, um, it's really hard to know how people feel about it in Ghana because obviously there are Ghanaians in the LGBTQIA community who are the people who inspired this letter, you know, and they are facing daily hostility, violence, threats, intimidation. So the, the letter that we published in support of the LGBTQIA community has had quite a mixed reaction. And obviously there are a lot of people in Ghana who belong to that community who are the people who inspired the letter because they have been facing violence, threats, intimidation, but they, by necessity, keep quiet and aren't able to be vocal about their sexuality, their identity. So it's, and, and their stories are rarely reported as well. So it's really difficult to know how big that community is. I mean, the people that we were supporting is, is um, run a center, which is now closed down. But the majority of people in Ghana in that community aren't, aren't out in the public because it's too dangerous 
to do so. And then in terms of the reaction, it's similar in the sense that there are a lot of people who are outwardly homophobic, who are completely comfortable persecuting in at least their rhetoric, that community, um, the influence of conservative evangelical churches is very strong here. And I think a huge part of the ongoing hostility towards any change. But it's really hard to know how many people here quietly support the project of protecting the LGBTQ community and supporting equal rights. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as well. I think there's a perception that the letter that we signed was trying to change Ghanaian culture, trying to introduce gay marriage, all these things that are really sensitive here and people feel not in harmony with traditional culture and values. And that's a whole conversation to be had. But the reality is that it's still a criminal act to have homosexual sex in Ghana. And as long as it remains a criminal act, there will always be a perception that it's legitimate to persecute people who are gay. And this letter was simply saying, members of that community deserve the same human rights protections as all other humans, which really shouldn't be controversial. It really shouldn't be a debate. It's a question of basic human rights protections. And I think people misunderstand that and think that this is actually a project of radically changing the legal and human rights landscape. And, you know, whatever your views about that, it's true that, you know, as diasporans, we, the people who signed the letter are diasporans, it isn't right to come in and dictate to a country how it needs to evolve its social and religious norms. And I, I wouldn't do that. And I don't think anyone else who signed the letter seeks to do that. But when it comes to expecting human rights protections for people in the LGBTQIA community, I don't think that should be up for debate. And that's not a question of cultural relativism. And it's not a question of having a colonial attitude. And it's very ironic to me that people perceive this as a kind of Western mindset that's being imposed on Ghana, when the truth is that the penal codes that criminalize homosexuality are British inventions that were brought here during colonialism. The churches that are fueling a lot of this homophobic rhetoric were brought initially by Christian missionaries who came from European countries who sought to downgrade and eradicate traditional values and beliefs. So I think it would be great to have a conversation about what traditional Ghanaian culture and values is when it comes to these questions. But that's not the debate we're having. The debate we're having is about how the legacy of British colonialism and the legacy of European missionary evangelism have made many Ghanaians believe these are traditional values. So, you know, it's difficult. And I'm always mindful that I don't live here all the time. I grew up in Britain. I know a lot of Ghanaians feel quite triggered by the idea of diasporans lecturing them on these subjects. But I also know there are a lot of Ghanaians here who believe in human rights and equality. And so I hope that that letter helps amplify their voices. And that that's one of the reasons that we signed it. So, you know, you have to be optimistic and just be a good ally to the people who are suffering. And that, that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. So many important points in that. And I think the, the point about a lot of homophobic legislation actually being a remnant of colonialism is a point that not enough people bring up, especially um, in terms of like even the Western perception of these countries that are now grappling with the like the after effects of that. But I would love for us to get into your extract, which I read and was so pleased about because I feel like it opens up so much discussion and it's fascinating to hear from an 18 year old Afua. Um, so if you could read that out for us and then we'll get into some questions. 
Okay, so just to introduce this, when I was 18, um, in 1999, I was interviewed for The Guardian by a journalist who I'm still really good friends with and I still really admire, Omega Douglas. She was a journalist. She worked at The Voice, where I used to write when I was a teenager, and she was freelancing at other publications. So she wrote this article for The Guardian, and what had happened was Jeffrey Archer had said that Black women were unattractive, and he made a bunch of completely unacceptable racist remarks about black women. And so in response, Omega had interviewed three black women of different generations to get our perspective on our blackness and being a black woman. So this is the interview that I gave her. And I'm glad you were looking forward to it because I'm not, but I am going to share it with you because I did <laughs> say it and it was published and there it is. So I was a mixed race kid at a mainly white school. And when I was younger, I was conscious of trying to look European to fit in. Outside of my family, I was seen as abnormal because white was what was normal. I remember I used to try everything to make my hair straight. I'd hate it when it was frizzy and people would make fun of me and say it was like cotton wool. White boys used to call me thunder thighs and ask if I could wash my braids. They made me feel like I couldn't be myself. I've generally felt more appreciated by and comfortable around black people. I first started hanging around with black guys when I realized what spending time with white people was doing to me. The white guys I knew were very negative and wanted women to look like models, whereas the black guys were more into women who were real and had real figures. Some white guys do see you as a kind of novelty. I know as a black woman, I could be viewed as some exotic thing, but it's never happened to me because I've never allowed it to. I like to think I don't have a preference for white or black men, but in reality, I find I have more in common with black guys. It's not a conscious decision, but there's a level of understanding there. And my experience of white guys not finding me attractive when I was younger makes me question why they would now. On the other hand, my dad's white and my mum's black, and I see that as a loving relationship. In terms of looks, we are moving towards a more inclusive image of beauty, but it's still the case that the more European you look, the more beautiful you're considered to be. Most black women in the public eye, in music videos say, are light-skinned with weaves or straight hair. I've had white friends reassuring me that they don't look at me as black. They look at me just like them, as if that's supposed to make me feel better. It's only white people who ever say we're all the same, really. The sooner people start to celebrate the differences, the sooner we can get some kind of equality. The end. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Thank you so much for that <laughs> incredible read. Uh, Affluent oh, president. <laughs> <laughs> At least no one can accuse me of like coming to this conversation. Yeah, bl- late. Belatedly. I've been on for the sure. same thing since I was a teenager. <laughs> How does it feel to read that back, like two decades later? How has anything changed? Is there any bit in particular that makes you go, you know, all of that, just unpack? I'm quite surprised, actually. I'm quite surprised at how consistent I've been. I actually didn't realise I was coming out with stuff like that when I was, because I was still at school and I grew up in a very white environment. So I was quite brave, I think, to say that, because it would have been very um, alienating to my school friends and the people that I grew up around. But I think I was just so radicalized by my experiences and the experience was twofold it was on the one hand like constantly being racialized and then on the other hand constantly being told by people they didn't see race and we're all the same and I was like I know from the way that I am being racialized every day that you see race but you're you're gaslighting me by saying you don't see it so now there's no space in which I can actually express Mm -hmm. the ways in which this works so I'm I kind of know that I was on that but I'm surprised to see it you know, like it's not that different from something I could have written now, except my complete preoccupation with boys, which is really embarrassing. <laughs> it's all about guys and boys and who finds yeah, me attractive. Yeah. And like, obviously, that is a reflection on where I was at at the time. You know, I was a teenager. And I think it's the case as well for a lot of women that, you know, your first education about how you are perceived racially comes from attraction, from you know, people that you want to like you, you want to be liked, you want approval, you want to be seen as attractive, you want to feel desirable. You know, when you're going through adolescence, these are the things in reality that preoccupy you. So 100%. I guess I, that that was definitely captured in that lesson. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it reminds me so much of like my diaries from, which would have been like, you know, five, five or six years later, you know, when I was starting high school and exactly the same preoccupations 
a lot of the same sort of dialogue around like who found me attractive and what I look like um so yeah very very much empathy for 18 year old effort oh, thank you. <laughs> but but what I wanted to sort of spin off was just that Natalie I don't know if you've noticed this as well and Afo I don't know if you've been on the platform called Clubhouse I made my Clubhouse debut on Wednesday oh did <laughs> so you congratulations <laughs> I mean, I still haven't been on it. Yeah, thankfully, because I don't have an iPhone. But from what I understand, and Natty can correct me if I'm wrong, there's been a lot of rooms recently talking about beauty and dating and race. And it's one of those kind of almost like hot hot button, is that, is that the phrase? Hot button topics, which seems to just be very cyclical. And I, I, I'm just interested in how we sort of move the conversation. I hate this term, but like, yeah, yeah, I guess how we move the conversation forward around dating as black women and, and who finds us attractive. I was just going to say demonstrably, it hasn't moved forward very much because what I was saying in 1999, young women still say to me now. I, I have been on Clubhouse as well. I have spoken on it once, but I've been on the app for about six months. I haven't opened it in about three. But yeah, I, I think those conversations are really interesting. I would say that one thing that I'm realising though is how... Of course, beauty is and dating is a, is a conversation that we have, and it's it's a lot of our conversations are rooted around that because it's something that is the most obvious iteration of like being racialized. But I would say that what I've learned is how the same beauty and the same relations they just bleed through into every aspect of our existence. And so, where even eighteen year old you is talking about, you know, who finds her attractive, who finds her strange, who exoticizes her. That is how you're treated in all of your relations between different people. And, and that will, while it might not have been something that you were focused on then, it's just, mm -hmm. it is very per pervasive. So, yeah, I think while we talk about beauty and we talk about dating, we, we keep it in like this romance box. Mm. It does dictate our positions, you know, in, in most aspects of life. Totally. And I mean, you know, if you look at my journey, that's where it started. It started with me trying to understand why I was the only person in my year who didn't have a boyfriend you know, and like was kind of like put at the bottom of the list at university when the boy in charge of housing at my college ranked all the women in terms of how attractive he found us. He put me last, so I, I couldn't get accommodation. It was like on that level. And it was these things that... What? Yeah, oh I know. It was and it's funny, you know, it's one of yeah. those, that is one of those stories that I just, it didn't seem normal. Like it was really, you know, I was really upset about it. But it was only recently that I thought about it again and thought, that is wild. Mm. That's what was going on when I was at university. And it might sound like it's confined, like you said, to kind of like romance or relations with boys or the opposite sex or whoever you find attractive. But actually, it's often your entry point into having to confront how you are perceived in this world. And for me, it set me on this journey of really actually then wanting to do the work and having to self-educate about race because it wasn't part of my education and there wasn't material about it that was accessible. And you know, it led me to a much more politicized understanding of race and an interest in history and the structure of colonialism and capitalism, you know, but it started with the fact that the boys in my area didn't think I was attractive. So I think it is often, you know, the, the thing close to home. One thing that's been really interesting, actually, for me is in my, when, since my book was published, people in interracial marriages or relationships or people in interracial families speaking in quite nuanced ways about the dynamics in their family, because that was really taboo. You know, you could talk about people who were racist or you could talk about people who weren't interested in you or weren't attracted to you. But to actually go there in terms of your own parents or your own partner and 
be honest about the really complicated dynamics you experience, I think is like another level. And that maybe is one way we've moved the conversation forward because the reality is that this isn't really personal. We are all conditioned in a world that is based on white supremacist ideas. We've all been educated into white supremacy, whether we like it or not. And we're all at different stages of trying to counter that, trying to self-educate, trying to work out how we can unpick this. So, you know, being black or having a black partner or having mixed race kids, none of this exempts you from the problem. None of this makes you immune from these ideas that we've internalized. And I think that, you know, for a lot of my life, it was seen as a kind of like a final blow to any conversation. You know, I'm, I have a black wife. I have black kids. My best friend is black. That's it. I like I don't need to engage. I'm fine. It's really recently that I think those spaces are opening up and people are actually starting to want to examine those dynamics, which for me is really interesting. And it starts for me quite personally, because, you know, when my book came out, I hadn't really talked to my own family about a lot of these experiences and issues. It was just so difficult. It's so sensitive and for a long time felt quite taboo. And it was actually easier in some ways to write a book and publish it and do book events and invite my parents, if you can believe that, than to just say, I want to talk about this. And it's prompted some really interesting conversations in my family and among my friends that really needed to be had, but it was difficult to have the language or the space to do it. So, you know, those are the ways in which I hope we are going forward. Yeah, I love that. But one thing, just going back to kind of you being interviewed for this article, and you mentioned that you'd already been sort of writing for The Voice at this time. I've been researching around the history of the Black press a lot recently, and just finding out more about how The Voice was set up and just the function of the Black press moving forward. And I just wondered how that helped to formulate or um, yeah, formulate your career as, as a journalist sort of working in those very young years um, for a Black owned media company. Yeah, The Voice made my career and I always try and draw attention to that and not just me, but so many other black journalists I know who are now and the biggest mainstream platforms started at the black press, whether it's The Voice or New Nation or um, Pride magazine. And these black publications created a real springboard for us, you know, to actually get experience, be published. Um, we were nurtured there. We were given opportunities and you know, it's only once we had a track record of being published and writing really good content there that we started to even be considered by the mainstream white press. So a, a lot of the young journalists at The Voice when I started there, because I was still in school doing work experience when I started, but the kind of young cohort of fully employed reporters, they were incredible. They were graduates from the best universities. They were really dynamic. They had great ideas, but they had found entry schemes and entry level jobs completely close to them at other newspapers. So The Voice is just always played such an important role in that respect. I started working at Voice when I was 14 and my first article was about racism in football, which is really depressing because when I read about racism in football now, it literally is exactly the same level of problem and response that I was writing about when I was, I think it was 1995. And then I started writing the Young Voices page. So I did it as work experience and loved it. And then I started going after school and writing about issues facing young black people in London. You know, it, it was the beginning of my professional career in journalism, but it was also very personal because, and it's a bit sad to admit this, but I was a young black person in a, growing up in a completely white area. I didn't have any black friends. And this actually gave me a way of meeting young black people. It's like, I now had permission or a reason to go and talk to young black people and, you know, just 
interview them, but it was really a device for making that connection. So it was really important for me. And I discovered that I felt part of the black community and I wanted to highlight the things that young black people were facing. But I also discovered that I love journalism and I love telling stories and I loved reporting and I loved interviewing people and I loved writing and all these things that I now still do. So it was a really important part of my development, actually. And I didn't, after university, actually stay in journalism for a while. I went off and did other things, but I always came back to journalism and always came back to storytelling. And that's been like the consistent thread throughout my career. So big up the voice. That's amazing. And I, I just wanted to hark back to, I guess, that Afua, but also the one who you were saying, you know, wrote this or spoke to The Guardian at that stage when she was still kind of like imbued in a white space. And I guess like I wondered, maybe because I have a similar experience, what happened when you started to have that kind of awakening and realise and radicalise yourself with those relationships that you already had and that you had been committed to for already 18 years of your life? Did you did you kind of lose connection with any people? Did you have a lot of conversations at that time? Or did you just kind of shift into a new environment? I don't know if I created distance or the things I was doing and talking about created distance for me. But there was a period where, you know, I, I went to the same school from the age of seven to 18. And when I left school, I was hardly friends with anyone. Um, and it was actually quite sad. You know, these were literally people I grew up with. And it's interesting in, in my 30s and when my book came out, I've reconnected with some people I went to school with. And it's kind of self-selective. People who people got in touch with me saying, I kind of saw this, but I didn't do anything. And I really regret that. And I, I just want to say that you know, I was aware of what you were going through, but I didn't know how to respond. And, you know, I really, I really respect you for writing this book and I'm really supportive. And those people I just felt a real connection to because they were there and you know, it's not really their fault. None of us were equipped to navigate these issues. Um, in fact, I would say we were all deliberately being miseducated not to be able to handle them. So I've re remade some connections in the last decade, but um, there was like a long period where I was really alienated from the people I grew up with. And it is sad. And I think it is a reflection on how difficult it was to be black and to be unapologetically black in that space. You know, people were willing to tolerate me as long as I assimilated, which is, you know, what the predominant thinking at the time and in some many ways still is, as in, as if I behaved exactly like them and didn't do anything to draw attention to my difference, then I was acceptable. But to the extent that I wanted to be unapologetic about my blackness, my heritage, my perspective, that was seen as very disruptive and alienating and divisive. These are things that still all of my right wing critics still say about my work now. You know, you should be more grateful. We let you in. Just shut up and behave exactly like us. So, you know, I think um, I think it's hard. You pay a price, you pay a personal price for not going along with that. That's what people would still prefer because it doesn't threaten the status quo. It doesn't challenge or make them think differently. And if you want to be authentic to who you are and what you know, you, you do risk paying a price. But I wouldn't change any of that because it's made me who I am and it's made me somebody who is able to now, I think, speak my truth be authentic to myself, tell stories in an honest way. And actually so many people relate to that. And that's been a really good experience from my career that when you don't worry about alienating people, you just focus on telling the truth and doing it with integrity. People relate to you anyway. People from all different backgrounds, yeah. even my school friends, they actually say, 
I can relate to this because it's true and it's honest and it's it's motivated by a spirit of integrity that reaches people. And if you, ironically, if I did what I thought would get people's approval, I don't think I'd be useful to anyone. So that's been a big lesson for me. That's gorgeous. Thank you. Our final question. What do you think your younger self would think about where you are now and what you're up to in your life? Ah, oh, my younger self. I would love to give my younger self a hug because I think I was quite hard on her. And it was hard, I think, growing up. You know, I had a lot of privilege and I'm really conscious of that. I grew up in a very middle class area, went to a private school. I was raised by two loving parents in a nice house. And I've always felt in a way like not entitled to feel kind of pathos for my younger self because I had so much privilege but I was suffering a lot in terms of my identity and struggling to work out who I was and all the things I was just saying how I could be authentic worrying about alienating people that I loved and was close to really going through an identity crisis and manifesting all of the negativity we harbor towards blackness in our society you know it manifests in such a personal way and like self-loathing hating my body hating my hair hating my name really turning that prejudice on myself so I would love to give my younger self a hug and just say like you're enough you're beautiful you are just on your own journey to find who you are and you're not going to get it right straight away and you'll lose friends and you'll make mistakes but you'll get there in the end so that is definitely a message I would say to my younger self I think my younger self would be really happy with where I am now most of all because I'm comfortable in myself I'm not seeking anyone's approval I don't feel like I have to prove anything I get up every day and do something I believe in which is I just feel like I've kind of won the lottery every day in that respect that I get to get up and use my energy and my labor and my time doing what I believe in and doing things that I think are useful. So that's just a huge gift I'm so grateful for. And I think my younger self would be very relieved to know that was the destination that yeah, I was heading was to. Worth it. So, yeah, it was all <laughs> worth it. It was. Thank you so much. That was that was great. Thank you. Thank you guys for asking me such thoughtful questions. It's, um, it's not often that you get to reflect on these things, actually. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do. It's just, it's just amazing to see it. And, you know, we're, we're your biggest fans. So, yeah. Well, back at you. Back at you. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly in awe of the way that you guys are growing and reaching new audiences. So keep it going, man. It's, if, if, if you had been doing this when I was growing up, it would have been a whole different story. So Af was one of those people where when she's talking about her upbringing, I really have to prevent myself from just being like, me yep. too, me <laughs> yep, too. Yep, yep. Um, because it's it's just hugely relatable. And obviously she is a, a wee bit older than you and I, Natty. But um, I think her experiences, obviously, you know, growing up in predominantly white environments, thinking about body and beauty and boys and all these things. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what defined my early experiences and, and, and what I felt about about race growing up and it's it's I, I find Afa really remarkable though because as she says you know and as is borne out in everything that she produces she really like uh knows herself and trusts her her voice and that's because she she went from this place as, as she kind of reflected on today of thinking about it within the context of you know in, in quite a small context to 
you know, really educating herself, really mm. doing the work and the learning. And I'd love to get to that place where I just, <laughs> I feel, you know, like I've got it. And obviously there's always more to learn, more to do. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, this is a woman who has just done some incredible work around black history. And, and that's where I think that us as as young black mm. Brits need to go to to know how to move forward, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I think like, and I think a certain amount of that does just come with the experience of what you do in journalism and the kind of projects that you work on, I would say, are in a very similar space of like both self-discovery and also like cultural documentation. And I think you're you're well on the way as long as you believe on, in yourself. But yeah, I, I think it's just, it's also just fascinating to hear from someone who, as you said, like is a slightly different generation. And so there are almost like other nuances to so I think how she navigated the world back then versus us maybe or myself like 10 to 15 years later. But it's scary how much of it stays the same. I think that part, I'm kind of scared to say this as well because I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but the section about, you know, just the things that you start to learn and the things that you start to vocalise leading to a natural like distance between people who you've literally known for like 10 years of your life as you kind of move to London or you meet other people who have shared experiences with you I think that's something that was like really hard for me to grapple with in my own personal life and I didn't even really understand until a lot later so hearing that that's something that she went through as well is like kind of heartbreaking and kind of kind of reassuring yeah it was also really refreshing just to hear her talk a little bit about you know this thing of being critiqued or having different points of view from other black people yes. I found that really um that's maybe the first time I've heard someone talk about that properly in a while and and I think it's an important conversation to have for sure and so. I also think it plays into again as soon as she said it before you raised the clubhouse question I was thinking clubhouse <laughs> like as soon as she said people who was and you know what the hardest thing I think about it is that it is so hard to grapple with someone's lived experience or what they take to be their lived experience based, based on like a couple of thoughts that they've had on a certain situation. And I think that is one of the issues with how conversations occur on, on platforms like Clubhouse where for so long we've looked to black people and the black community to tell us about racism and what it means to them and how it feels. And so it makes it all the, hard, all the more hard to then question that same experience when it comes to their own anti-blackness or their own like you know white supremacist ideals that have been internalized so it's it's a completely different and like even more complex conversation than what you might have with you know white family members it's like how do I tell you that you're you're the yeah problem. you're the problem yeah, and yeah. you're the solution you know yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's so tricky. Discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Gaudam events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Gaudam Zine for the latest independent journalism, or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Gaudam has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up As People of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up With Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 